for example, in these Republican-controlled states, that one of the first things that they do is go after early Sunday voting. Mm. Folks call this souls to the polls, and it's one of the biggest forms of attack for those who seek to undermine Black voting power. Hello, welcome to Racism is Profitable, a podcast about race and the economy. I am Solana Rice, co-founder, co-executive director of Liberation in a Generation Action, and I'm joined by my co-founder and co-executive director, Jeremy Greer. What's up, y'all? I, it's a lot of, I, we have to talk about Georgia. It's been on my mind. I've once again been triggered by a former Viking football player. Oh, gosh. And I don't know what, what, what it is. One, the worst trade my team has ever made was for this man, Herschel Walker, um, who's now running for uh, Senator Georgia. And yeah, I've just been triggered. It's a lot. I wonder if you've been following this race. And thoughts on I, I saw the latest shenanigans uh, <laughs> during the debate. Uh, Herschel Walker there one I have to say I was a little disappointed that they both felt like they had to say police are okay and I support the police Um, at least uh, Warnock said well I also think accountability is important Herschel Walker uh, and, and he said well and I don't just go around saying that I'm a cop and pretending like I'm a cop like my opponent and of course, Herschel Walker felt like he needed to defend himself and pulled out a probably what was a fake badge, which but did, did uh, that, was, didn't it look like when Dare? Like, remember when like the McGruff yes. crime dog and like <laughs> Dare came to your school and like you got the little badges? Like, isn't that what that thing looked like? <laughs> oh God, yeah, it it did, and it was also. Uh, supposedly illegal in the debate uh, and the yeah. debate moderator tried to gently say I know that you know the rules of debate which was very generous very she called generous. it a prop she called there, it a prop it was a prop you cannot use props during a debate or else you'd probably have a diorama up and mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not kindergarten so no. I don't. So, what's your take? What's your I, take on this Herschel you know, Walker? I mean, the 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 polls are still close. Yeah, the polls yeah. are still close. It is. Yeah. the the re, most recent um, five thirty eight has the race at forty eight percent Warnock, forty four percent Walker, which means that Warnock, according to this poll, will not have reached the fifty percent threshold to avoid a runoff. Um, mm. So, it means that if you know, the, the polls trend the way they have, uh, we'd be looking at a few more months of these shenanigans um, afterwards. But my take on it is, you know, I feel like this is just another, like, another example of, you know, us constantly being like, you know, all skin folk and kin folk, right? Yeah. Like, like, it seems like the Republicans and the conservative movement trot out black person after black person, whether it's Herschel Walker whether it's Herman Cain, who ran for, mm. you know, the 999. Um, yeah, Herman Cain died of COVID. Um, but, or Kanye, you know, mm. in his White Lives mm. Matter shirt, or going into the White House and meeting with, with the president. Or, you know, 
our friend Ben Carson, who was running HUD, right? Or you know, it just seems like there's just this constant. It is a part. It is a playbook within the conservative movement to kind of not just trot out black conservatives because there are black conservatives that have like real conservative thought, but it's like a caricature of black conservatism mm. that they trot out, and it's almost a way that it's used to kind of like deflect and tamp down what is legitimate criticisms about their racist policies positions. It's really important that we all listen carefully and discern and not just vote based yeah. on race and ethnicity. Um, and while we need more representation, we also have to understand what that what that representative actually it's represents. A representative, yeah. Actually represented. It's partly why we started Liberation and Generation Action, right? To support folks' understanding of what candidates are really standing for and not just what they might look like, mm -hmm. uh, even though race and ethnicity are important. Important. Uh, it also just strikes me that, like, who was prepping Herschel Walker for this debate? Like, why was he going on? Like, I'm also going to need Republicans to actually support the black people in their yeah. party <laughs> to yeah. be successful, not just be up there talking. Yeah. And, and another thing that bothers me about this race is, you know, the other stuff that's happening around Herschel Walker with the... Um, it being released that he had um, paid for an abortion mm. um, through an extramarital affair that he had had, mm -hmm. and, and that he had um, he has a history of, of domestic violence against mm -hmm. his. Mm -hmm. and, and what bothers me about that is because what we have then is people on the left attacking mm -hmm. Herschel Walker on what have been just awful and horrible stereotypes about black men. And then there's also he's running against another black man who is who's, you know, a, a pastor and a reverend. So it creates this juxtaposition that has just made me feel uncomfortable mm. um, as a black man watching this kind of play out. And, um, you know, I think that what it's ultimately and I think why it's effect, been effective in a lot of ways for the conservatives is we have actually not been talking about Raphael Warnock. And exactly. his accomplishments and the things exactly. that he's done in the Senate exactly. and him being the, the the black senator, the current sitting black senator from a largely black state in Georgia. And that to me has been a, a real thing that's really troubled me about about this race. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was troubled. So I did just a quick Google search. I was like, well, what has this senator we're not done. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he's introduced four bills that I think are pretty interesting. One is capping mm. drug costs for seniors. Um, another one is looking into the racial and ethnic disparities of benefits given out by the Veterans Administration. Uh, another one is about creating, I think, you know, renaming the postal office. Everybody, every... every everyone in office puts that bill forward. A renaming yeah. of some yes. important federal building in their district. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But the other one, the last one, is this Maternal Health Quality Improvement Act. Mm. And if we really think about mm. drug prices, if we think about maternal health, if we think about veterans, those those are all black people issues. They're, right. they're issues that impact everyone. But if we think about maternal health in particular, 
uh, black maternal health is devastating if you really yeah. look at the numbers. So yeah. uh, I have hope in that regard, um, yeah. just given his, his what he has really led on uh, in the Senate so far. And that doesn't even count like the number of things he's like co-sponsored and, yeah. and et cetera. But I don't know if folks know that. I don't know if folks, right. you right. know, I think that's the the important thing that the And if they talked about in the, the debate, that's not what was covered. And if they talked yeah. about it in that debate, that's not what it covered. And like juxtaposition of Herschel Walker, whose policies and positions are pretty much your run-of-the-mill Republican policy position. He wants to cut taxes on the on the very wealthy. He wants to um shrink government and cut funding to social programs. So from a policy standpoint, you couldn't have any two different men. And it's unfortunate that because they're black men and because it's this like kind of infantilization in politics of black men in this way, that um, they haven't had a real debate on the issues. And that's, that's um, again, it is also a thing that makes me nervous because that's how Trump won, was mm. not focusing in on, on mm. the issues. And it's, it's something that... Uh, it worries me in Georgia. Yeah, I also think it's really just interesting and we're going to have such a great conversation with Jennifer Apps Addison and I hope yeah. we get to this. But, you know, I think this is also an important time to talk about the institutions that really shape how we understand politics. Yep. The black church has obviously been uh, a, uh, an anchor and yep. so much political activity, our political education, um, and our just our community building. Um, and we can't underestimate uh, that Senator Warnock comes from the church. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, the same church as Martin Luther King, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, this is a really interesting time to understand and get to know the, the dynamics which we'll get into of all this, like, what can nonprofits do? What can churches right. do? What what are other organizations that we need to form? We're going to have that conversation with Jennifer Addison. Jen, do you want to go by Jen, Jennifer? Like, how, what should we do? I'm good by anything. Jen is good. Jennifer's good. Just not Jenny. I have some, like, still working through some trauma from Forrest Gump when I was in middle school. So anything but Jenny is good for me. Not Jenny. Okay. okay. Well, it's good that it's that trauma, and not the J Lo trauma, because I was like, oh, but Jenny from the block. Okay. <laughs> that too. That too. <laughs> okay. um, well, thank you for joining our pod. Racism is profitable, and Jen, just tell us a little bit about what you're up to right now, where you've been, and what you're doing now. Yeah, my name, so I'm Jen Ups Addison, she, her pronouns, and I am the chief imagineer and founder of Synergy Power Consulting. I spent the last 25 years of my life in campaigns to help transform this country into a place where we all have the freedom to thrive. I've worked on economic justice and transforming our criminal legal system and, you know, e uh, equitable economic development, a whole host of issues. And I think for me, what it's always come down to is how do we dismantle the systems that harm our communities, that extract and exploit from them, and how do we rebuild in their stead systems that truly are rooted in care 
and our communities and ensuring that all of us have the things we need to lead healthy, safe, dignified lives. Jen, what, what's an Imagineer? I, I've never, I've, I've never heard that before. What, what is that? It's a made up job title. When you start your own <laughs> you call yourself anything. You know, and I was like, I don't feel like a president. A president is someone who gets elected or something. You know, I, I wasn't I didn't want to call myself an executive director because having spent the last six years as an ED, I felt like I was doing something different because I was sort of creating. And anyway, I, I came up with this title chief imagineer because I felt like what I wanted to do was spend my time helping people imagine the possible and then achieve it. So you know, that's why I said Chief Imagineer, but it's definitely made up. <laughs> hey, it's the, I love it. I love it. And, and why we, we wanted to have you on, because it's election season coming up. A lot of people are wondering, like, the do's and don'ts. What can I do? What can I do? And I wonder if you could just, you mentioned your campaign experience. I wonder if you could start with just giving us a little background and like through that experience, like how you've kind of navigated those waters, um, you know, over the years. Mm. I mean, I think that first of all, all of us have to see democracy and see elections as something more than just voting. It has to be something that we are engaged in and participating in every single day. When I think about elections and voting, I think about how do the people who are struggling the most, who have been the most marginalized and excluded, really gain power and control over the decisions and the institutions that impact their lives. Certainly through voting is one way that you gain power. But elections just aren't about that, that voting. It's really about how do you set the terms of the debate? So, you know, in the presidential election, we saw, for example, activists really pushing the president on everything from student loan forgiveness to how he would deal with, uh, you know, at that time, the emerging crisis of COVID um, to, you know, making amends and acknowledging the harm that's been done to black and brown communities in particular through the criminal legal system and identifying pathways forward together. So all of these issues were central and, and really it was activists on the ground, people who were demanding more for their vote than just platitudes who helped push forward these policies. And, and because of it now in governing, right, now that this president is governing, we're seeing the fruition of those aspirations come to reality through public policy. And so that's really what I focus on when I think about elections is, you know, not just what's on the table for right now. And, and certainly there's a lot on the table. I mean, got Roe v. Wade and, and the you know, hopefully the codification of abortion rights in this country for the first time. You know, we've got obviously all that's happening continues to happen with the housing crisis and with um, with our environmental crises. So there's a lot on the table. Um, but really right now, the way I see it is we've got to be ready to push people and to put people into office who are going to be open to working with us and creating real and lasting change in this country. You know, I think it's we've been talking to a lot of folks that are doing organizing and you've supported and have been organizing for a long time. And I'm wondering how you think about just what you said, like, how do you not get caught in this electoral cycle, knowing mm. that it's important, but there's going to be more mm. um, and still like balance that 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 juxtaposition of like, we need to get a good person in. But that's not the end all 
be all. Like, we're going to have to fight even when that person is elected, even if the person that we want it to be elected is elected. Um, can you tell me how you coach or guide folks that are in those fights to balance, like, yes, this is an important election because every election is important and (laughs) keep going. (laughs) Most important election of our lifetime. Every election. That's happened like 12 (laughs) elections in a row. That's all. (laughs) I mean, I will say that my ultimate vision for our democracy is that the people who run and win office are representative and reflective of the communities that they serve, right? That is ultimately my goal. And that doesn't just mean we need to elect more indigenous and black and brown and, and Asian folks into office, which of course we do. That's that's a huge piece of it. But I'm also talking about the economic diversity of who's representing us, right? Like Congress and the Senate are full of millionaires. And, and I, you know, if I hit a rock in my neighborhood, I don't think I'd find a millionaire anywhere, right? So like, I I think that like we need to really be clear about the folks we have representing us should actually have experiences with struggle. They should know what it's like to make Mm. the choice between, you know, the cheese and the meat. Right. They should know what the cost Mm -hmm. of milk is. They should understand the impact of gas going up one or two dollars a gallon. Right. And and so that's, I think, our ultimate vision and our ultimate goal. We are far away from that goal. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge it. That does not mean that we throw our hands up and dissolve ourselves of any responsibility to this system. You know, we have a North Star in mind. We have a path we're all heading towards ultimate liberation and freedom. But we have to also understand that there are milestones. There are rest points, right? There are places to camp and to nourish ourselves and to wash ourselves in the water that purifies (laughs) us, right? There are all of these places along the way to our ultimate North Star, right? And so I think that's what, to me, participating in elections where candidates are not perfect, right? Or where candidates may, um, you know, not represent our full vision for our freedom still matters and is still a critical responsibility that each and every one of us who are eligible to vote has. Yeah. But the activism, like the activism we carry out when we do it through our organizations is like, has constraints right there's like we can't do all the things we would like to do and it's because of federal laws because of tax structures and all that really complicated this like alphabet soup or morse code like kind of like set of numbers and letters that don't make sense i wonder if you could talk a little bit about just like brass tacks like for Mm -hmm. the listeners to kind of bring them up to speed on like if you, you know what the do's and don'ts are if you're this type of organization or that type yeah. of organization and what people can and cannot do. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I feel like, you know, the first thing I would suggest to you if you have the capacity is always consult an election lawyer. Because <laughs> I am not <laughs> yeah. in engineering and most people are not. Um, but the general thing to understand if you're a 501c3 nonprofit is that you are still... able to engage people and to encourage them to participate in our democracy, right? There should never be a time where you fear connecting potential voters to their rights and making sure that they have all of the resources, the tools, the knowledge, the know-how to actually cast their ballot. And then all of the work that goes into making sure that their ballot is actually counted, right? 
All of that is totally allowed for you as a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And so the idea that you have to stay completely disengaged from politics in order to have a nonprofit is a misnomer. I think that it is, you know, out there specifically and intentionally to help suppress, right, our participation in our votes. And so I think we are in a moment where we need nonprofits to be bold and to be audacious in their demands. And part of that means that you have a real plan to civically engage the folks who are in your base. Um, and that's what kind of what kind of what kind of organizations are 501c3s? Just so like people know. Yeah. So most of our nonprofit world. So if you think about the nonprofit world, you know, service based organizations, community organizations, neighborhood associations, churches, um, most of these things are nonpartisan nonprofit 501c3 organizations. Right. So, you know, you know, you file your tax status, you, you you fill out the little form online, you are most likely a 501c3 nonpartisan organization. It means that you can't take partisan political stances. You cannot, for mm-hmm. example, endorse a candidate or an issue on the ballot. However, you can provide education. And my experience is that when we give people the information, they make the choice that is best for their lives, right? We don't actually have to right. lead them all the way to an end answer. And so really what we're saying is, if you are in a state like California that's got three dozen ballot initiatives, I'm, you know, I am a trained attorney, like I've written legal policy and sometimes I can't even figure out these ballot initiatives. (laughs) I am so grateful to organizations like Community Coalition and Inner City Struggle Mm -hmm. and the Movement for Black Lives who all put together nonpartisan voter guides that help me understand what would the impact of each of these ballot initiatives be on my life and my community. So that's something that you can do as a nonpartisan nonprofit. Um, The other thing is you can engage and mobilize folks to vote. A lot of people believe wrongly that they are not eligible to vote, you know, particularly people who have previous relationships or engagements in the criminal justice system, right? People who are formerly incarcerated, who are on parole, who have felony convictions, A lot of these folks believe erroneously that they can't vote. So one of the biggest things that you can do as a nonprofit is make sure that everybody who is eligible to vote actually knows how to do it and knows that they're eligible. To me, that really, you know, yes, social media, um, you know, is important there. But the biggest influencer on whether or not folks are going to vote outside of their own personal self-determination are their circle of family and friends, right? Their sphere of influence. And so... Really, you saying, I've got 10 people in my life who may or may not vote, or I've got 10 members in my organization, and I'm really not sure if they're going to vote. I'm going to pick those 10 people, and I'm going to make it my mission to make sure they show up to the polls, right? That is really transformational, and that's how you can really get engaged. Jen, I I did not grow up in the Black church, uh, <laughs> and uh, but I, I do know that People are very influenced. <laughs> folks, folks that go to a church that I know that are black people, <laughs> they are devout. And I wonder if in your experience, how have you experienced the, the black church in terms of getting information to folks? Is it this you know, I think we always keep saying like the black church is the institution. It is a political mm-hmm. institution. It is where we get our information. It is where, is that true? Like in your experience, is that true? 
it's a it's a key piece. It's a key piece, and and I think that you know, listen, black churches are not monoliths, uh, and certainly we saw a number of black churches, uh, especially as uh, you know, school vouchers, you know, in the early two thousands and. Uh, became such a contentious issue, a wedge issue is what we call it within the black community mm-hmm. where cynical Republicans and, you know, those who seek to harm and extract from our people used it as a way to divide the voting power and the block voting power of the black uh, vote. Mm-hmm. So so certainly folks are not a monolith. However, by and large, right, the vast majority of black churches in this country who engage in voter education and empowerment are doing so from a really, you know, a, a genuine place of, of power are doing so as part of the legacy of struggle for civil rights in this country mm-hmm. and are working, you know, in coordination to make sure that every single person gets the the chance to participate in their democracy. And it's been hugely effective. It's why we see, for example, in these uh, Republican controlled states that one of the first things that they do is go after early Sunday voting. Right. Uh, folks call this souls to the polls. How do we get all the souls in our seats to go to the polls? And you see it, you know, whether you're down south, whether you're in the Midwest, on the coast, it has been a tradition of the black church. And it's one of the biggest forms of attack for those who seek to undermine undermine black voting power. Um, but I will say the church is not enough. Right. First of all, across the board, church membership has been dwindling over the last two decades. Um, but, you know, even irrespective of that, the reality is, is that, you know, there are lots of different folks in the black community who are not going to Christian churches, right? Um, They are, you know, have different belief systems. They're of different religions. They are not religious at all. They're atheists or agnostic, right? And so, yes, that should be one place we meet folks, but we need to meet folks everywhere they're at. We need to be in workplaces and at work sites. We need to organize through you know, worker power. We need to be rooted in our neighborhoods and spending most of our time meeting people at their doors in places where they're comfortable and feel a sense of community. Um, you know, we need to be at big events. We need to be dominating and, and have influencers who uh, utilize the power of, and harness the power of social media. We need all of that. The churches are a piece of it, but they're not the only piece. Yeah, I want to follow on this because for some context, like this this legal structure that we operate in as nonprofits doing advocacy came to be because of the passage of something called the Johnson Amendment, which is the, a, an amendment to a tax bill in 1954 by President Johnson, signed the Civil Rights uh, Bill. and But the intentionality around that was because people, and he included, felt it was a problem that the church was so involved in political activity and the churches being very involved in political activity were many of the black churches that were so involved in civil rights uh, fights at the time. And, you know, this podcast is called Racism and Profitable. And it's interesting to us that we're living in this system of advocacy where some of the intentionality around putting it in place was to silence black people. And I just want to get your response to kind of that like just position of where we're operating today, because I think what's also interesting is that many of the people fighting against the Johnson Amendment are these evangelical churches, these kind of 
white supremacist kind mm-hmm. of organization. So I, I, I'm interested to just to get your thoughts on that kind of like where we found us today yeah. um, in this kind of, uh, you know, fight for our liberation. Yeah. I mean, I would just say not just fighting against it, but actively disregarding it, right? You have evangelical preachers who are specifically advocating for candidates from their pulpit and inviting, literally inviting the federal government to do something about it. And I think, you know, the reality is, is we know how racism works, right? And so we know that the second, uh, you know, powerful black church within any given community steps out of line, that those folks will be the target of investigations and inquiries, if not by the federal government, certainly by hostile state entities, you know, the majority of our state governments being run by conservatives, right? And yet we see sort of a free pass on the other side. We rarely see these evangelical Uh, institutions being brought to heel. We rarely see them being criticized for their positions in the media. And, you know, in fact, we sort of just acknowledge, right, that they're going to be rule breakers. They're engaging in direct action, if you will. Um, And there's a tacit acceptance for it, right? Meanwhile, we play the purity politics with people of color and we say, you must be inside the rules. You must follow exactly. You don't want to give them a reason And so we're creating an unfair playing field from the absolute beginning. But this is why I recommend for those of us who really want to bring about social transformation, Jeremy, like you said, we have to understand the system we're playing in. It's no longer enough for us to just have 501c3 organizations as nonprofits. Mm -hmm. We need to have related entities that are 501c4s, which then can engage in political activity, We need to have our own PACs, which are specifically about identifying and investing in candidates that actually share our values. Um, And, you know, at this stage of the game, I also want us to have an S-Corp or an LLC where we're able to Mm -hmm. actually monetize and and generate revenue from the work that we do and keep that within our organizing homes and traditions. And so for me, at this point, If you are, you know, a a BIPOC person fighting for freedom in this country and you're a part of an institution, that institution really needs to have, you know, it needs to be like a stool with four legs. You know, we're all balanced on the top of it, but we've got to have all of these different pieces that hold it together. Yeah, I I find it interesting you mentioned the the way that it's like kind of enforced when it becomes the kind of like evangelical right that are pushing maybe a uh, like pro-capitalist agenda while they're pushing, you know, a social kind of like, um, you know, their social uh, policy. But also it's like it's the IRS is actually not very active from what I could tell in this space. And it seems like we as progressive are not re- really fully being regulated by the IRS, but also from philanthropy itself. Because they're the ones kind of enforcing the rules in this way, and it, it, it seems to me it, it puts us in a position using where the IRS as cover, as cover, and where it seems like we're we're fighting this battle with one arm behind our back because our our, our funders. So it's interesting that I, I I like the way you you framed that, and then also connected it to the need to like create our own capital um, yeah. that we control in order to do this. So just. Well, Jeremy, you hit it right on the head, though, right? When you tied the nexus, right, 
um, back to philanthropy. And the reality is, is that um, the Johnson Act was created for the exact same purposes as philanthropy as we know it today was created, right? So Mm -hmm. the history of philanthropy is that uh, very wealthy people who extracted their wealth from black and brown and indigenous communities, right, who gained that wealth through undue gains, right, through the exploitation and the harm, right, and the stealing of labor and its outproducts, right, then needed a place to essentially bury and hide that undue gain <laughs> um, so that it did not go back into, right, because what was happening were populist movements that were demanding mm-hmm. that the fruits of capital, right, that were gained by labor actually then go back to the people whose labor created it. And so in order to say, oh, we don't actually have this money, look, it's over here mm-hmm. and, and and we are going to give it back to you, but we're going to decide how we That's give it back, to you, right? So instead of social good public policy, that is, you know, needs blind and blanketly benefits everyone. You have, you know, the same folks who got this ill-gotten wealth through harm, who are now saying we're also going to now fund the solutions to the problems that we created. And so we're all playing this game. I, I say this to say I've been a willing participant in this system for oh. 25 years. I am not, mm-hmm. you know, trying to like absolve myself of responsibility, but I do think it is important for us to understand. And so as we talk about liberation. Right. Part of what we know is that we are going to have to work within the systems that exist as they exist. We're going to, you know, within that, not actually do more harm. Right. Not do things that reinforce or strengthen the systems that we ultimately want to dismantle. That's abolition theory. First, do no harm. And simultaneously, we're going to be working on transforming and reimagining and rebuilding systems in ways that actually benefit our communities and help us thrive. So we're working on both of those things at the same time and we can hold those contradictions. You talked about the the stool and having all of these different types of entities. We it's it's no secret that those entities exist, but why do you think we don't have more of them? Why do you think like not every organization just starts out with all of these entities at its disposal. Um, why are we not all, especially as black people and people of color, why are we not working with all the tools in the toolbox? That's such a good question. I feel like if I had the answer, I'd be <laughs> I'd be really wealthy or something. I don't know. I'm living a different life. I, I liken it to, you know, this like disruption theory, the idea that like, if you just create chaos around people, they won't be able to actually focus on the task at hand. And and sometimes mm. I, if you look at Trump's presidency, for, uh, for example, he is probably like will go down in history as one of the like textbook users of disruption theory, meaning you know, he didn't ever give activists the chance to fully litigate and organize around any particular issue. Every day he would throw a different bomb that segmented our power and our base and made us sort of move in different directions. So I think that the thing that we have to do as a people, as those who believe in freedom and are a part of this liberation struggle, is we really have to go back to our North Star theory, right? This this idea that comes out of the black freedom struggle of defining where we're all heading, right? Where are we gonna end up together? That's our North Star. 
And then understanding that, you know, the North Star lit the pathway, you know, no matter where you're at, it's a clear pathway to tell you you're heading in the right direction, right? And so it's this idea that we can be on many different paths if we're all going to the same place, right? And, and what are our guideposts to get there? So I think that, you know, um, it's okay to have an ecosystem of a lot of different organizations if we're we working in deep collaboration and connected to each other and share a vision for where we're going. Our, I think our problem is that what has happened is that disruption theory, right? Like instead of the North Star theory, which should underpin our work, we're in reaction mode to that disruption theory. And so I wanna see us pull back. I wanna see us say, what, you know, what entities would we need to create in order to feel a sense of safety and security, right? Because that's really, you may not even ever use your C4. You might only have $1,000 in your C4 that you know you self-funded <laughs> or you took up a collection for, however it might be. But Hello. It is like, <laughs> right? It is like the breath of knowing I've got it. And if I ever have to justify X, I can put it right here in this place, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing with the LLC. You may not ever use it, but right now you're probably selling T-shirts or some kind of, you know, membership or something. And what would it look like if instead all of that merchandise, instead of going into the nonprofit, was actually coming out of an LLC where you could borrow against it, you could take out loans on it, it could become a real asset, right? All of these things are possible. Um, it can be protected in case like the federal government ever tries to come after you and dismantle you like they did with acorn right like mm -hmm. so it's just like really thinking about how can we build up assets and as you build assets over time you can then start thinking about how are we generating revenue so that less and less of our organizational budget relies on the like money the funneling of money from people who historically have harmed our folks mm -hmm. right and, there, and I'm not telling people not to take philanthropy's money in a way. It's a little bit like reparations, right? But the difference is, for me, reparations is like actually self-determination and control. And right now, the wrong people are still determining how the resources are divided and who gets them, right? Who's worthy of getting them. And so until we disrupt philanthropy in a way where it is more um like down my small d democratic and where those who have been sort of most harmed actually have more control and say over how the resources flow um i think that you know we need to have a lot of different entities and be moving towards generating our own revenue is is starting to see for that hard i mean it sounds like you don't need a lot of money to do it, it sounds like it's something. I mean, the way you explained it, you made it, you, you made it seem like it's very easy. Is, is it <laughs> that easy to start a, a C4? I mean, let me just say that, first of all, a lot of money is relevant, right? To somebody yeah. coming from the neighborhood yeah. that I was raised in in Milwaukee, $1,000 feels like a million. Like a they never million, seen yeah. it before. Ain't nobody in their family ever had it in their bank mm -hmm. account, right? So, I want to say that, you know, it's all relative to our experience and what's easy or hard. I won't pretend that as somebody who at least had the opportunity to get go to law school, I probably have an unfair advantage to folks who are coming in off the street and are like, let me figure these systems out. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, that being said, there's a lot of support out there for folks who want to develop these systems. You literally can Google, right? Uh, building a C4 or starting a C4 organization, yeah. you don't need more than that. And you're gonna get a 
I don't know. Can I cuss? I doesn't say a shitload. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. If you cuss, but you're going to get a ton of resources okay. right there off the bat on how you do it. It really is just a, a little bit of paperwork. So, so the three things you really need when starting any of these entities, but let's just start, you know, focusing on your C4. First of all, you need your vision and your value, right? What's your vision for the work? Why are you creating this? What impact do you want to have? And what value are you going to have to the folks who join it or participate or engage in it, right? So you really want to know what that is before you actually fill out your paperwork. That should lead you to a name because you're going to need to name your C4. A lot of people just literally keep their whatever their organization name is and just put action at the end of it, right? That indicates, mm -hmm. right, because we want people to do something, C4 is about getting people, you know, into collective action. So they just put action at the end of it. Um, and then, you know, again, you want to find out the rules for C4s. You're, you're going to Google that. Maybe you'll, you know, think that's a good $300 investment and you're just going to ask a lawyer to explain to you, you know, for an hour and a half of their time. I know 90 minutes, $300, it, it hurts, but it, it will be just <laughs> $300 you spent, right? If you can mm -hmm. have somebody really clearly explain the rules for you so you feel confident that you're going to be within the law. Um, and then you're going to need the, the, the third piece is you're going to need your advisory board, um, your board of directors and, and a place to host it. So if you're going to be independent from the start, you're going to get your bank account, you'll get your EIN number, and you'll establish who your board members are, build out your charter. If you are going to be hosted by a group like Tides Advocacy, for example, mm -hmm. um, that hosts before organizations, so you don't have to have your independent tax status, you can rely on theirs and they will do all of the compliance work for you. Um, then, you know, you'll want an advisory board and your charter, but actually you're going to use their infrastructure so you won't have to develop all of those other things. And there are a number of places that host um, organizations, but I always recommend Tides to people because that's the one I've used the most in my work. Right. So it sounds like a shit ton of resources, but not necessarily a shit ton of money uh, to make it happen. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Started is not a lot of money, but to do what you're imagining you want to do with it, yeah. it requires money. And you're going to have yeah. to think about how do we get there, right? C4 fundraising is really hard. It yeah. often, it you know, to me, when you're fundraising for a C3, you're you're often sort of like, bringing people into your like aspirations and making them feel something right in order to them to get them to invest in the long term. But when you're asking people to give you C4 or PAC donations, they give a shit about that election right there in that moment. They want to mm -hmm. know how that donation is going to be the difference maker. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and exactly who's going to benefit or be targeted from it. So they want to understand I am targeting black voters in Kentucky in the Senate race. I am targeting, you know, um, Latino voters in Pennsylvania in the governor's race, et cetera. They want to be really, you know, sort of hands on on how the money will be spent in your C4. And raising that money, you know, is difficult because people aren't getting a tax write off on it. So they have to really believe right in the impact that you're about to create for them. Um, so that money can be harder. The, the way that I really suggest for people to do it is oftentimes right now, people um, who are raising money through small dollar donations are doing it through their C3 because either they only have a C3 or that's kind of the primary brand people know. 
I always recommend creating a C4 and doing all your small dollar fundraising through your C4, right? Um, whether you're raising $5,000 a year or $50,000 a year, you want that money to be as flexible as possible and you wanna be able to use it for pretty much any purpose. So just that little shift can really make a huge difference in, in you know, what money is available to you in your C4. Well, we have covered a lot of ground. We have talked a lot about the infrastructure of organizations necessary to give us the most political influence and flexibility necessary to usher in liberation. Sitting with one foot in these current systems with a, another foot in imagining a new system. Jen, just in our last minute, how are you feeling about these midterms? Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I feel like I feel every year, which is, you know, I think there are a lot of missed opportunities and we're going to have to see how it shakes out. Mm -hmm. I think that if we and by we, I mean the political class were to listen, truly listen to black and brown and Asian and indigenous and anti-racist white folks on the ground who are on the front lines doing this organizing, then we would have seen vastly different candidates and messages, Mm -hmm. um, you know, coming up this fall. As it is, what I do know, what I know for sure, is that our activists are doing everything they can do to build power for our people that is truly in the hands of our people in every community, in every state across this country. Mm. I think we're just going to have to all wait and see if it's enough. Yeah. Thanks, Jen. Jennifer Abs Addison, Imagineer. <laughs> She's Imagineer. Uh, thanks for being on the pod, Jen. Really appreciate it. All right, peace, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information, check out our list of episode resources and visit us at liberationinagenerationaction.org. Shout out to our producer and audio editor, Nino Fernandez, the design team at TrimTab, and the LibGen Action Communications team. Like what you heard? Help us make some noise by telling two friends about the Racism is Profitable podcast. Until next time, y'all, peace.